we're looking at a series of lessons on simply the theme of seeing the unseen, understanding, appreciating, and living with the true supernatural. There's a lot of phony supernatural out there, a lot of wizardry, a lot of sophistry, a lot of things that are fake that come across as spiritual in nature. But in Scripture, we have concrete realities that we come to terms with, not only concerning the nature of God, but the nature of the enemy, uh, the enemy simply called Satan or the devil most commonly in Scripture. So in six lessons, we're looking at this unseen world. We looked at a simply coming to terms that there's a world beyond this world that we uh, are dealing with in our life here on this earth. Today we'll look at the realities of both God and Satan. We'll look at Satan and temptation uh, next week. Uh, actually, I've got two dates down here. Uh, we have angels and demons we'll look at at a future time. Miracles in the supernatural. Um, how do we understand supernatural occurrences in our world? Do they happen? If so, when and how? And then finally, we'll look at the war that is already won. Uh, how God is on our side in this great challenge. But today we're going to look at uh, the theme of simply the cosmic war behind your daily struggles. Uh, the battle beyond the stars, which is borrowing from an old movie title. To understand that behind every daily struggle, uh, behind every temptation, behind every weakness, is a war that is raging. And the war is raging over you. And over every single battle you have in your life. With everyone that struggles with addiction, the war is raging. Whether it be alcohol, chemical addiction. Someone who's addicted to theft is involved in a war every time they're tempted to take something. Those who are wrestling with lust, those who deal with envy is a constant challenge. Wanting what other people have or jealousy being angry about what other people have, or even gossip, someone who traffics in gossip, is part of a war that is waged in heaven itself, but it involves battles here on this earth. And today I want to look closely at that war to see the two entities that are in great conflict over you, not only to see where they are coming from in the conflict, but to see the value of you to both of them. First of all, understand, Jay, if you could advance me here. There we go. That God is creator, supreme in power, and all good. Before we look at Genesis 1, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 6. This is kind of our, our keynote verse for all that we're looking at, Ephesians chapter 6, you can just kind of listen along with me if you have your Bible with you or you have your Bible on a, your phone, feel free to look it up with me. Here's our keynote verse for all of these lessons that sets the stage for what we'll see today. Look what the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesians over 2,000 years ago concerning the war being waged in their life. He says, verse 10 beginning, finally be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual 
forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Verse 15, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Notice here in this very well-known text, two arch enemies that are pitted against one another. First of all, we're told in verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God. That is one side in this great cosmic war over you. But then we're also told about extinguishing all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That is the other side. The evil one was referred to in verse 11 when it says, take your stand against the devil's schemes. I want to understand both sides today and why both sides want you, but yet what their intentions are. First of all, the side of God himself. God in Scripture is portrayed, first of all, as the creator. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God what? Created the heavens and the earth. And we read on later in chapter 1, verse 26 through verse 28, that God made human beings in his image, both male and female. And God is always this in Scripture. He is the creator. He is the uncreated one. Uh, he is eternal in nature as well. He's always existed. There's never been a beginning point for him. He has simply always been there. Always God, also God is always the supreme being. Not only is he eternal in nature, he is the creator. He's supreme in power. I want to look at how the Apostle Paul presented our God in Acts chapter 17. It says 18 on the screen, but it's actually 17. Notice how Paul, when he preached to people that struggled with the whole idea of God and how to understand God, notice what the Apostle Paul said about God and how he's to be understood. Verse 24, Acts chapter 17, Paul preaches, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For one man he made the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from any one of us. Verse 28, For in him we live, we move, and we have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Just pause here. This is at the heart of all preaching in the New Testament, that when God is referred to, he's not some entity that competes with other entities like the gods of Greek mythology. He's not a god that has his own weaknesses. God is simply the supreme one, creator. He made the world and everything in it. He's not served by human hands 
And in him, we have life, breath, and everything else. This is one side of this great struggle. This God who is creator, supreme in power. Everything exists that exists is because of him that we see around us. Look at how the Apostle Paul takes it even further in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, here Paul is uh, telling Timothy what he ought to preach. And he breaks into this glorious praise of our God. Uh, he says to Timothy, I charge you, chapter 6, verse 13, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, which God will bring about in His own time. God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To Him be honor and might forever. Amen. Here we find Paul bringing forth praise by the Spirit of God as he speaks to the nature of God. He builds upon what he said in Acts 17, that God is creator. He is the one that brought all into existence. And now proclaims that God is the supreme ruler as well. There is no competitor as far as being the true ruler. There's one that's a fraud that we'll see in just a moment that presents himself as ruler and that wants to take God's place but yet cannot but decides he at least wants to ruin things for God. And that is rule over your life. That is the evil one. But God is always the supreme ruler. There's nothing that he cannot stop. There's nothing that he is, does not have power over. He is supreme. He is immortal, Paul says. He lives in unapproachable light. No one has seen him or can see him. He is the supreme entity. He is not a God among many gods. Along with His Spirit and His Son, He is God. This is one side and the supreme side. But also look at the nature of this God. This is what God really wants us to focus on. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, and then verse, or chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. This is also true about our God. Verse 5, 1 John 1. This is the message we have heard from Him, and declare to you that God is light and in Him there is no what? No darkness at all. Keep that in mind. God is light, in Him is no darkness. Now go to chapter 4, verse 15. Here John proclaims by the Spirit of God, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We see here two more aspects of God's nature that God emphasizes in Scripture. First of all, that He is light. Not only is God the creator of light, He Himself embodies light. 
And to make sure that we understand what that means, John says in chapter 1, verse 5, and in him is no darkness at all. That is when we consider our God, our Creator, the one who is truly immortal, eternal. There is no darkness. Though we may not always understand how He works, and there's difficult things within Scripture at times concerning His punishments and His levels of accountability that He holds us to, there is nothing about Him that is dark. That is, He does not have ulterior motives. He does not work for His own self-aggrandizement. He does not simply pursue things that are evil as we might pursue them. There is in no way that he entertains sinful thoughts or that he himself sins. Again, this sets him apart from all the gods of ancient Greek mythology. They had their own struggles. They had powers, but they had their own weaknesses. And when you read Greek mythology, you see those right on the surface all, all the time. But in Scripture, God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. But also God is love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. In Scripture, God is not only all-powerful, but He's the God that pursues. He's the God that has chased after us since one writer said 15 minutes into the Garden of Eden when human beings started running from Him as Jay brought out so well in a past lesson. God is always pursuing His people. They're never, hardly ever pursuing Him, but He is pursuing them, chasing after them with His love, His desire to bring them back, whether it be the nation of Israel, the Old Testament that has ran from Him. He's always seeking to bring them back. Because God will not entertain the idea that His people will not be with Him one day. But they will entertain it and do the exact opposite of what he's looking for. But understand your God this morning. Understand that even in the moments you don't feel like your family loves you, you feel like you're alone perhaps in this world and loneliness overtakes you at times, understand there's one who's with you at all moments, who's omnipresent. There's never a moment in your life he's not been with you. He's not known about your struggles. He does not understand what you're going through. He is always there and always aware and always all-powerful to do something about your situation. You are never truly alone, though you may feel loneliness at times. And you're never unloved. No matter how deep in descent your life has gone, there's never a moment that God stopped loving you. He's been pained over me, and He's been pained over you at times in our lives. But He's never stopped loving. This is a God of life and love. Your Creator. And one day, the God who brings you home. But there's this second reality as far as a spiritual being we have to understand. And this reality or this being is simply called Satan. In many places in Scripture, other times he's called the devil. Jesus called him simply the evil one. In Revelation, he's called the adversary. In other places, he's simply called the tempter. In all of his existence, he is simply the opposite of God. But yet, we, we struggle to understand this being. If God is all powerful, God is all loving, He's omnipresent, omnipotent, 
uh, all-knowing. How could this being exist? Where did he come from if God is the supreme and true and only ruler? First of all, we have to simply acknowledge he's, he exists even if we don't understand exactly where he came from. Look at John chapter 8. I want to see what Jesus himself said and probably, uh, probably one of the most direct texts about Satan himself that simply forces us to come to terms with the fact that even though we might understand God and we appreciate his holiness and his love, we're going to have to understand Satan too. And Satan cannot be explained away as some uh, just a fictional being or some just pretend entity that we don't take seriously, that is laughed about by comedians and, and TV shows. But we have to take Satan as seriously as we take God. Because God and His Son Jesus took him that seriously. Uh, look what is said in John chapter 8, verse 42. Here Jesus is confronting people that would be called his detractors, people that were trying to disrail him from his mission of bringing salvation to his people, uh, the Jews. And he confronts them now as they continue to try to push him. He says, verse 42, John 8, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Verse 43, why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. Notice what he says next, verse 44. He says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 45, yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. We'll just stop here. What I first want to notice is Jesus acknowledges the reality of Satan. And he doesn't talk about him like he, he's some kind of Paul Bunyan. Some kind of story of legend, of myth, and just like, a, like a, just a story to be read to children. He is never entertained that way in Scripture. There's never any joking about Satan. There's never entertainment that he might be anything less than a very real and very powerful, yet very evil entity. Jesus just flat out says, you belong to your father, the devil. And he's not joking or he's not trying to just intensify his criticism. Whenever Jesus spoke of the evil one, remember even in the Lord's prayers we understand it. Deliver us from, not our mistakes, but deliver us from whom? The evil one. Jesus took Satan deadly serious. And so what we. So despite our decaying culture continuing to joke about anyone that refers to Satan, or whether it be Saturday Night Live, or other shows that make fun of him, or rock bands that do, or other entities, understand that he's very real and taken real as real by God, as far as a threat to us. But where did he come from? If God is all-powerful, God is light, God is love, how in the world 
could an evil entity like this exist? And that is the question of the hour. Because after reading about God, you think, well, this would be a perfect world then. There would be nothing wrong with it. The flowers would always be blooming. We would always do the right thing. Just there would never be an issue at all with decisions that we have to struggle with. But instead, we find we're in a fallen world. That right off the bat, as Jay taught, you have the evil one disguising himself as a certain serpent and deceiving Eve and then Adam going right along with it in a relatively short period of time after being in the garden. Where did he come from? How can his existence be explained? First of all, we don't have one verse that says, here's where he came from. Here was his start. But we have some pretty powerful clues. I want to look at some of those briefly because this is a real question. How did he get here? Was he always here with God? Is he equal with God in power? Or if he's lesser, how did he get to this point of being the evil one? You don't get there in two seconds. You had to arrive there. Let's look at some verses that give us clues. Bible scholars go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and Jude 6 is probably one of the best starting places. And then we'll see in Revelation, just a minute, uh, chapter 12, more clarity, and we'll look at some other places or I'll just refer to them. First of all, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 2 Peter 2, verse 4. These are places that give us pretty powerful clues uh, that paint a picture of the origin of Satan and why he does what he does. In 2 Peter, Peter is talking by the Spirit of God about challenges that the Christians to whom he's writing are facing. He's talking about false prophets in verse 1 of chapter 2. He talks about there's false teachers among you. He's talking about people that have nothing but wrong intentions for them, wrong motives. But then he adds this in verse 4 of chapter uh, 2, 2 Peter 2. He says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held in judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and burned them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, and he goes on. Peter goes on to talk about events that are of historical certainty in Scripture. But he also puts at the top of the list, God not sparing these angels who sinned. It says he casts them down to hell or to Hades, putting them in chains of darkness. So here we find a glimpse into a super, our supernatural world as far as angels, that they have this free will. These supernatural angelic beings have free will. And some of them have sinned. They've done just what humans have done in the past. They've sinned against their God too and rebelled. And that's just a clue, but it's a hint that there are supernatural beings that also have sinned just like human beings have sinned. And he's talking about a time in the past where God did not spare angels who sinned. Uh, go forward now to the book of Jude, the very small book of Jude right before Revelation. Just one chapter, uh, just verse 6. Here Jude, in his writing, says things that are very similar to what Peter said in his second epistle. And look at the similarity, but yet the addition of thought to what he said about angels who sinned, uh, what Peter said about angels who sinned. Um, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority. 
who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In the same way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffered the punishment of eternal fire. So again, a similar text, stopping here, on God's judgment of sin. But he talks here about times in the past, just as Peter did. Jude speaks about angels who did not keep their positions of authority. So not only did, did angels, and they do have these positions having freedom, they also have authority, but some here it says they abandoned that and they tried rebelling against God. In some way, we're not given much more detail, but they did. He said kept, he's kept them in darkness till the time of judgment. So here you have this thought of supernatural beings these principalities and powers that are referred to in Ephesians 6 that have rebelled against God. Let's go now to the Revelation. Go right to chapter 12. Even though Revelation has a lot of symbolic, figurative language, it has also that figurative language connected to what appear to be some very real truths concerning what is going on in our world. And here... John is receiving revelations from God, and he speaks about this war in heaven. Verse 7, it says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Verse 8, But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with them. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. Skip now to verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged against the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. I want to first say that this is not as clear as I would like it to be. Because I like things really clear. Two plus two is four. That's the clarity John likes. But this is more powerful evidence that Satan may well be one of these angelic beings that rebelled against God but yet he, instead of being cast to Hades or to hell to be bound there, was allowed simply to go to the earth. Michael, the archangel of God, fought against him but did not prevail. He was cast down to the earth. This ancient serpent, there's again a connection language-wise, devil or Satan, is he was cast down to the earth and he leads the whole world astray. Just as you put all these passages and others together, 
That is the best evidence we have, that Satan was a created being like all the angels. He appears to have rebelled against God, was allowed to come down to the earth, and allowed to have a great deal of power. Beyond that explanation, I don't have much more to really identify the origin of Satan. Scripture does not emphasize it. Scripture emphasizes what Satan is doing right now in our lives. But there's this great struggle over us. You find the book of Job. Satan is described as walking to and fro where? On the earth. It's this language of Revelation 12. In James chapter 5, verse 8, Satan walks to and fro seeking whom he may devour. In Luke 22, as Jesus warns Peter before Jesus gives himself over to being arrested, he tells Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed that when you return, you will strengthen your brethren. As you start combining all these texts, here's the picture we have of Satan. That first of all, he's the exact opposite of God, but he's not equal to God. He does not have God's power, but he was simply a rebel that God allowed to go down to the earth. I don't fully understand that, but he's here. And that's the reality I have to come to terms with. He has a lot of power to tempt, but in Scripture, he never has the power to make you do something you don't want to do. Satan never has the power to make you do something you don't want to do. But he can definitely get in your business. He knows every one of your weaknesses, uh, just like Jesus does. He knows what buttons to push in your life, and He's simply here among us, though we cannot see Him. And that's the picture we have in the book of Job. We have it in the Gospels. We have Paul using the same kind of language for our struggle. It's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. And he talks about extinguishing the fiery darts of the evil one. Satan always is entertained as very real and to be taken very seriously, but always also presented as one day meeting his final end. And the Revelation, even perhaps here in chapter 12, talks about Satan's final end, but he's not done yet. <laughs> and God's allowing him to work on this earth. And the question we'll pursue next week is why? Why is God allowing him to be here to wreak so much havoc. I want to give simply a preview. You're more important than you think you are. In the Garden of Eden, we find this grand gamble on the part of God. That is to give the human beings that he created free will. Animals, they just have instinct. We had the freedom to choose right and wrong. And God believed that would be worth it because what He wants from you and I is our love. God has all the power to take anything He wants. But for love to be love, it has to be given. That's what makes a wedding so beautiful. Two people are choosing to be together. If someone had a gun to their head at a wedding and make it the most 
awful of scenes. But your Creator wants your love. And love that is given is beautiful, but love that is given even when you have other choices. Think about marriage. Forsaking all others, do you take this woman to be your wife? That makes it even more beautiful. And our God in Scripture treasures the love that you and I have to offer Him. And it's even more valuable when you have other choices. And even though we may not fully understand the depth of how that trickles down to all the troubles we experience with temptation, there's a great value of every decision you and I make when we choose God over Satan. Because Satan wants to ruin it all. His ultimate destruction is previewed in Scripture. He's going down in flames, but he's not going to go down without a fight. And that fight is over your life and over the person next to you's life. He has one goal, but to embarrass God and to shame God and take the love that God wants and let it come to Him by you and I committing sin. By showing our devotion to Him is greater than our devotion to God. And ultimately win the war over our lives. And that's why the battles rage in your life and my life. It's a great struggle between God and Satan. That God's not going to make you do the right thing. Satan can't make you do the right thing. It's your choosing the right thing that's of extreme value to God. That's why in the book of Job, the first thing God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. And then Satan says he doesn't serve you because he loves you. He serves you because of what he gets out of it. We'll explore that more next week to understand what's going on behind our temptations in this great cosmic war that's happening right now that one day will be ultimately won by God, and we'll talk about why next week. But thank you for your attention to these difficult things. This is not fun stuff to listen to. It's not fun to talk about. But we come to terms with it. Our battles will be won, and we'll see the great war and the victory in Jesus that we've sang about. Our victories in Him, and one day God will call us home. But we have a ways to go and a fight to be fought until we get there. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song to encourage you, that Daniel's led, uh, to stay in the battle, to not give up, not to abandon this great conflict and give yourself over to what Satan is trying to make most important to you. Don't give up. Remember who you are. Someone has invested the life of his son in you. You could not be any more loved than being loved by God.